0: Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about building systems and closure with Wilkash Koretsky. Welcome to the show, Wilkash.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm sure that somebody made that joke before, but I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, so I'm delighted (laughs) to be here.
0: It's great to have you on. And I've been sort of talking with you on and off for a little while, and we finally managed to get this together more than a year, I think, after we first so talking about doing this, so do you want to tell everyone what's the company that you're working on? What's your architecture? Just give us a little bit of a picture and backstory Absolutely. To enjoy HQ. Yeah.
1: So Enjoy HQ is a startup that I co-founded over five years ago with my partner, Sophia. And initially we started with a very simple premise and it was a problem that we ran into together while working at a company before starting Enjoy, which was the fact that it's very hard to get access to customer feedback. When you work in a bigger company, because the customer feedback is not only someone sending you an email, it's also marketing department running a survey. It's also your support tickets. It's also random tweet showing up on Twitter and so on. It's very hard to get all that data together. That was our premise. That was it. And we were thinking about this for a couple of months. I started prototyping it and I came up with this very simple Rails application that would just connect to a couple of APIs, get everything indexed and searchable. And that was our pitch, Like just see all your data together. And within five years, it kind of grew into something completely different, serving quite a different market. And we actually didn't start with Clojure. We actually were just a Rails application that was built by two people and that's it. And Clojure was never on our, let's say, technology radar, so to speak, early on. And then we kind of evolved into it. So as for what NJQ HQ is now, it's a platform for user researchers and design teams. We just help collate the user feedback from different sources, but we also then make it easy to build a repository of research. So we go beyond just connecting data from integration. There's a lot of document authoring within the tool, sharing of insights, building reports, uh, real-time analytics almost, and also the original idea of bringing the data from different sources.
0: Nice. And so... Who would be the people using this? Sure you know? thing. Is this developers or designers? or? Yeah,
1: it starts with uh, either designers or head of design. These people usually have, in more established companies, they have a role of user experience researcher. That would be the people that work with designers and their role is to talk to as many customers, research better solutions for the existing product or feature and then come up with ways to improve them so that's where it starts and then that's where designers get involved because they in a lot of companies they actually do that role as well so apart from just designing interfaces they have to get back to users do studies come up with results of those studies and then present them to the product team and say okay we need to improve this widget because it looks like it's a massive pain or if we change this we will improve the user experience therefore we might have a business impact like increase, you know, just stickiness if in the application or whatnot. So that's where it starts. But we start seeing a lot of people start joining the tool and there will be product managers, sometimes customers support representatives and so on. Eventually, permeates through the whole business because everybody wants to know what the customers are saying in a more digestive way.
0: Great. And so you mentioned you started off in Ruby and you're now, there's closure in the mix. So what was that transition like?
1: So... I learned a lot of languages throughout my career. I actually tried to always work with Common Lisp. It was just impossible for me. Those jobs were just not available anywhere. And at the same time, as a recovering PHP developer, I found Ruby on Rails sometime in like 2006, I believe, or or 7. I don't remember exactly now. So that's how I kind of got into various different jobs. So I was always a Ruby person, but eventually I started... Just looking into other languages. So I actually have some closure code written in like 2011 or something. It went back when you had to have AND. And, there oh, were, wow. and you couldn't, I think there was no namespace system. So you had to like load everything yourself in just one file. It was pretty cool. pretty low level, so to speak. <laughs> and, you know, I still have that code on GitHub or, or something. It's hilarious. Like I didn't know about let, so I use def within def and uh, it, it's fantastic. <laughs> But it's, a, you know, it's we are some of our mistakes at the end of the day. So I remember having Clojure and one thing that, okay, well, this is on the JVM. So I always had that in my mind that this is something different than what I'm used to, like Ruby or Go or Python or Scheme or whatever. So as we were working on Enjoy or NomNom, Nom, as it used to be called back then, we had quite big requirements in terms of natural language processing. So we didn't want to write Java. I had a personal dislike for Scala and the engineer that was working with me who's still with us to this day, he said, well, why, you know, if it's JVM, why just don't we just try Clojure? You know, it looks cool. I was like, yeah, let's try it. Like, what do we have to lose? We we were like six months into building the product. So all bets are off. We are effectively greenfield at this point. So we said, okay, this is, we whipped out that prototype that was supposed to replace a Python service and it performed like 10 times better, was faster, had like, one third of the original code. So we're like, okay, that's, that looks great. So we started then started effectively replacing bit by bit our Rails application, which grew pretty fast at that time. And slowly we went from being 100% Ruby shop to having now a very tiny Rails application that just logs people in. And that's it. You know, it serves the React app that we have, but then 90% of the backend code is Closure, and it is doing a lot of things. It's all over the place, including uh, monitoring our architect- infrastructure or you know, doing some backend tasks, doing business metrics and sending them somewhere else. It's everywhere at
0: this point. Nice. But you've still got... There's still new development happening at the mm-hmm. front end with Rails.
1: Yes. Uh, so to a point, so we carved out the responsibilities in such a way that the Rails application, we call it the front end. It is our front end. That's where users log in. That's where they open accounts. They manage other team users. And then the Rails app also delivers our React front-end, the client application.
0: Right. But then
1: that's it. Once that's done, everything is hand-off to our authentication layer, also powered by uh, Clojure and Nginx. And then that just talks to around 20 services written in Clojure. So it's a bigish distributed system maintained by a very, very small team.
0: Yeah. How many people have you got working with you?
1: So there's uh, four engineers working on the whole thing, which is pretty remarkable. And it's just a testament to how productive we are. We have one front-end engineer and three back-end engineers, including myself and me as being the the co-founder. I also do a lot of other things. So it's two people effectively (laughs) managing the whole thing. But like I said, it is the testament to how productive we are with Clojure, not necessarily how genius we are and whatever. 10x engineers, as they say.
0: So you've been working on, you know, releasing some of the work that you've done as open source libraries. Uh, you wrote a post, I think this was maybe a year or more mm-hmm. ago now about Vernacular, which yes. is a asynchronous messaging library. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and other queuing work that you've been working on?
1: Definitely. So one thing to clarify, I'm actually not the primary of, of the library. I just basically came up with the idea for it. But all the hard work, maintenance, debugging, all the performance improvements, and then just getting us to a point where we process millions of jobs on RabbitMQ with Clojure. It's all credit goes to Marketa Adamova. She's our senior backend engineer. So we need to step back a bit because RabbitMQ also predates Clojure. It's just a system that I've been working with before, prior to starting Enjoy, and it will serve us very well. We used it with Ruby, And it was a great bridge of extracting parts of the Rails application and effectively turning it into Clojure because we just kept the interface the same, right? Through the asynchronous messaging. So then we had, I think, like two or three stabs at building our own way of consuming RabbitMQ messages and the whole publish subscribe system. And... There were some libraries available at the time where we started, but we always kept running into some odd issues or something being behind. So eventually we just said, okay, we're just going to grab the official Java client, just wrap it in something that we can use, but also has certain properties. And those are what I would refer like day two things. So building a simple consumer that just pulls jobs off the queue is very simple, but running 20,000 jobs per minute is not and you need to know what's happening. So consuming the jobs and pushing to the queue is as important as knowing what's happening, how many jobs we are doing, what breaks, can we retry? Should we retry? How many times? What is the backup? All those things are actually very important. It's not only about, oh well, I get a queued up job. <laughs> so that's that's where Barnacula came from. We struggled with all these issues, connection management, and we had to roll up our sleeves and that's where Marqueta did the majority of the job. She actually gave a talk at the closure days in Amsterdam, I believe two or three years ago, sometime before we open sourced Panicula and when the post was open. So I'll try to find the link so we can include it in the in the show notes. And she goes into more of the history of what failed and the fun stuff that we found, including some interesting network errors related to Docker and so on. <laughs> but yes, so one thing is that I noticed that the longer I work with Clojure, the word framework is kind of frowned upon and for the right reasons, sometimes I would say, because Clojure is such a simple language and it doesn't take much to wire different libraries together. But at the same time, that has a downside that a bigger architectural patterns are not very pronounced, if that makes any sense, is that yeah. you have to, you have this toolkit and you have to pull it all together. You know, some assembly required should be like a tagline for every closure library ever on GitHub. So we kind of went, well, this is a bit bigger than that because it binds multiple libraries that we built in open source. It does metrics, it does error tracking, there's some logging involved, and there's, of course, the RabbitMQ part. And we kind of packaged it all together, and it does more than just, this is a simple way of doing X. It's just built for production, not necessary for just simple use case.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a pattern that I've seen quite a lot. In, yeah in the closure community that you get a, you know a bunch of these great simple like well abstracted libraries, which all do one thing really well, but then often it's on you to say well, where's the log and go, where is the monitoring, how do we know if something goes wrong that's those really important things more left up to the user often, not always, but
1: yeah, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing or it's good. I would say it's different because coming from Ruby world, where convenience ah. is everything. It's a quite stark contrast, but at the same time, it does require you to think through what you're actually going to build, if that makes any sense. Anybody can put a yeah. Rails app, because I used to actually teach web programming through Rails, and I managed to teach a couple of people to build web applications You know, in specific time, and they were able to do it, but then when it comes to, again well, let's run this in production. Is it going to scale beyond 10 users? That's an exercise left to the reader. And often right. those exercises are very hard to perform when everything's on fire. So Clojure has this advantage that when you're reaching out for it, it's like a well-polished tool. And yes, you have to put things together, but then you get this incredible quality of it. So it's it's, it's an interesting balancing act, but it kind of is like an antithesis of, of what Ruby does, in my eyes, of course.
0: Yeah. So you had a post late last year i'm talking about overthinking it which i want to talk about the general post later but firstly you mentioned you picked rethink db as one of the data stores that you used and i also picked rethink db a few years ago now mm-hmm. and yeah what was the context behind picking it and then what's it been like removing it later
1: oh wow so this comes part as part of our evolution of of rebuilding parts of the rails application into closure and Are you familiar with the Strangler pattern?
0: Yes, Uh, but maybe tell everyone else. Yeah,
1: so the general principle is that we have a monolith and as we extract parts of it, we keep the outer interfaces the same, pretending that the monolith is still there, but the backing services can be anything else. So that's what we tried in the beginning. So we pretended that the Rails app worked the way it worked, but rather than talking to whatever database we were using at that point, I think it was still Postgres we basically replaced parts of it with with a closure application, and a lot of data that we store is unstructured. They're just JSON documents at the end of the day. So at that time, we couldn't because we didn't know what we were building to a point. It's very hard to predict the future, as everybody knows. So we decided, okay, these documents, we don't know what their schema is, so it's probably best if we just pick a document store. That's where RethinkDB kind of came about, because I had some bad experiences with Mongo MongoDB in the past. I knew that we can do something better, and view was great in many aspects. It's the distributed nature and clustering was always super rock solid. That never failed us and definitely did the job for us, which was you just throw JSON at it and you get it back. But very quickly, we found a lot of other issues with it, which was you kind of really query it. If you use it as a key value store, which is I know the UID of something I when I get it, it's fine. But anything beyond that. Never did really delivered on its promise, like joins or complicated mapping functions. It's just we never managed to get any good performance out of it, and then, so we decided to shut it down. There's more to it, of course, because kind of the service that wraps wrapped RiffingDB became like the core service of the whole system. So it was quite interesting exercise. It's quite a while, and we are back on Postgres, but now of course we are four years smarter. So we know what the access patterns are. We know what data should go where, and the schema is more or less set, but we can evolve it now at a, a bit slower and more thoughtful pace. So that was like a lesson that I would like to avoid having next time. But at the same time, it was a great learning experience because we were like, okay, well, this no SQL stuff is kind of okay, but in a very narrow use case. And it was our mistake of kind of a bit jumping on, on the new Shiny because it was this, well, we are on closure, It's going great. Why not? Just add another technology that we are that looks pretty <laughs> solid and new, and of course you know we shoot ourselves in the foot. Now, not to discredit RethinkDB and, and the team behind it and the whole story of the company is quite interesting as well. It's very solid product. I would say that it has definitely its uses. If I had to pick like a distributed key-value store that's a bit more than just simple values, it, it definitely does its work. And we never had a let's say, infrastructure problems with it. The, the clustering, resizing clusters, all of that works fine. It's just it was not the document database that can do joins and other things. That definitely was missold to a point. It never actually performed the way it was supposed to. So, yeah, we finished our migration back to Postgres. Of course, with a completely different schema and different features over the years a month or two ago. So it was pretty fun. It was just editing some Terraform files, running apply, and and it was gone. There was no ceremony like Amazon when they shut down their Oracle databases. It was just one comment pushed to GitHub and it was gone. It was (laughs) pretty sad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about, I guess, some of the things you've learned building distributed systems. You've had five years plus. You've kind of, I guess, had the ability to make make some mistakes and then have another crack at it a second time.
1: Yeah. So this kind of goes into the the is one of those things that other part is kind of related to what we are actually doing, which is there's the user interface where people can create documents and group user feedback together and run some simple analysis on it. But the back end of it also synchronizes a lot of data coming from different integrations. So something like Zendesk for customer support or Typeform for surveys and so on. And we have to I don't want to use that phrase, download the internet a lot of the times because we are mostly after the raw feedback. So there's a lot of data coming our way and we have to pull various APIs on a quite regular schedule. And of course, because we are a B2B business to business application, we have to stay up basically all the time. We have to continuously sync the data. So we have to have redundancy in what we do. We cannot just run one instance of a monolith. And as we grow, we have to have multiple instances of various pieces of the backend. That inherently starts becoming a distributed system, whether we like it or not, because there's some synchronization, there's some asynchronous processing of things. And one of the things that I touched on in the blog post I wrote was that one of the problems we had was how we can ensure that at any given time in a distributed system, there's only one thing doing a particular job, which in our case would be running a scheduler that would just tell something, okay, now synchronize this data set for this account. And for a long time we just combated by just a config. We would just designate one out of three or one out of five instances. Okay, you are the scheduler running just don't restart ever because we'll be you know in trouble. <laughs> but of course that doesn't scale. So again, having the lesson learned from ReefingDB and some other experiments we were running in the past, we took our time. We wrote, I believe, three Google documents discussing different approaches, evaluating different technologies, and we just we did our hammock time while everything was working, the way it was working. And sometimes someone will have to manually intervene and restart a particular service to bring the scheduler back. And it paid off because we ended up writing the smallest library ever, which is, I think, two lines of SQL with some sugar on top of it, that (laughs) reuse existing technology and just solve our job. We have our effectively distributed system that knows how to do one thing at a time when we tell it to. And... It was like a hard-learned lesson as well, because I did look into different, let's say, better marketed solutions, like distributed key value stores, ZooKeeper or Console and them, and which are have definitely their place. At a certain scale, those will be unavoidable, and we are aware of that. But what is the simplest solution at the stage of our growth that we are in, that we can take, that will not be a maintenance burden, we can operationalize it and run it in production, know what's happening without learning a new technology that we don't know? Then Again, Postgres just one, and we started joking that at some point we'll replace RabbitMQ with Postgres, which I kind of started doing. (laughs) Uh, I'm starting. I'm starting to write a library for doing background job processing with Postgres. It's up there on GitHub. It's not for production use by any means, but it it would be interesting to just start shedding the infrastructure and just have nothing to run because at this point we run on. Well, I don't want to use the word serverless, but we run very few servers of our own. We use managed services wherever possible. So RabbitMQ is like the sticking point that we still have to do ourselves.
0: So where are you running your infrastructure?
1: So we are partially on Google Cloud and on Amazon. We're actually moving most of our workloads to Amazon now for a lot of reasons, uh, mostly financial and economical. I'm familiar with both clouds. I've been using Amazon for a long time and I like Google Cloud as well. It's just the business part, I'm also responsible. At a small startup like ours, I'm also the CIO, CSO, CFO. So there's also those decisions that drive a lot of what we do.
0: And to be clear, it's cheaper for you to run what you're running in yes. AWS than GCP. Yes,
1: and we have the nice benefit of using things like ECS and Fargate, which are, again, distributed system for managing running your containers without no servers, and which kind of fit our usage patterns a bit more what Google is offering. And again, we are at the stage where we're at, we are too small to adopt something as big and complicated as Kubernetes. So we are again, we are very right. pragmatic about the technology choices that we make.
0: Gotcha. And so I've looked at you know, various serverless things, Cloud Run and Google, which is you know, pretty similar to Fargate. Mm. And the sticking point that we found with Clojure backend services was the boot time and cold yeah. starts. So is that... Do you use this for user-facing services or what's what's the story there?
1: So there's a major difference between Cloud Run, which I'm a big fan of, versus FireGate. So Cloud Run is the operational model is closer to something like Amazon Lambda or Google Cloud Functions where you pay per invocation. So that's Mm -hmm. where the startup time matters, but you throw a Docker container image at it and that could be anything, not just a very limited system like a Cloud Function. So we actually use Cloud Run for certain tasks. Fargate is closer to like an unmanaged virtual machine where its only role is to run Docker containers and nothing else. You cannot run yeah. any software on it. So Fargate runs more like an instance that it's on 24-7. You pay for that time, not for HTTP invocations like in Cloud Run, mm-hmm. which gives us the ability to just ease scaling up and down, make some of the background jobs which do not do HTTP call processing at all, those can still run on Fargate and we just have fewer instances to run. That includes our security posture because there's just no machines to break in. We are isolated from malicious files that we have to process. We can just shut down everything and no trace of anything is or any of the virtual machines. So we manage that that way. There's a lot of security considerations that Fargate helps with as opposed to just running your stuff on virtual machines.
0: Nice. But you're not doing sort of heavy auto scaling in Fargate?
1: No, not at the moment. Our load is... At the moment, it's pretty predictable. We know we can scale up when we have to. It's more about actually scaling down. We have, because we, again, we sell to businesses, we can scale down just to maintain the minimal stuff. And then come Monday, we can scale up automatically. We don't have to do dynamic scaling based on demand. It's more about uh, driven by time.
0: Great. That makes sense. And so are you planning to keep, like is the long-term going to be split between Google Cloud and AWS or is it just over time you'll eventually move everything at the
1: moment yeah i see that we'll be migrating mostly to amazon simply because of majority of workloads is already there so it's it makes sense for us however we keep a lot of the cloud run stuff in google and some of their nlp services that we leverage so we are we are very fashionable we are multi-cloud so that's a term for 2020
0: (laughs) yeah and so i'm just sort of trying to get a picture of the development work and code scale, is there more code spent getting the data to your services, like Mm -hmm. pulling it from other people, or is it doing stuff with it once it's there? Like where's the work? That's that's a
1: great question. It's actually both. Getting the data in is one problem. So we have quite a nice separation of concerns. I think that's why service-oriented architecture, it kind of works for us because we have dedicated services per integration. So something like Zendesk or Intercom and so on. And then the core data model and all the user-facing operations on the back end are also driven by Clojure. And that happens like a step after the data is ingested. And we have our own internal document format that we use to normalize data coming from other sources. So for some of them, the documents will be editable by the users. For some of them, they will be on the read-only. And all of that is done in Clojure as well. So we have like these two systems running where part of it just sucks the data from the internet normalizes it, and then sends it back to the other part that our users actually use and, and can select piece of text, highlight it, assign some tags and classification to that highlight, and so on. And that's also a pretty big part of the system. Our document format is completely proprietary, sadly, but it's so geared to our use case, but it's all built in Clojure. We use a lot of uh, zippers there and fancy stuff. We also have our own query language for search, which is built on top of Antler and stuff like that. That's all Clojure as well.
0: Wow. So people can write like a Enjoy Elastic QL
1: kind. pretty much, yeah. It's very much inspired by Lucene and Elasticsearch because that's what originally we started, but as we needed more control of the language, one of our engineers sat down and used CLJ Antler created by I Aether, I believe. And we used that yeah. to effectively parse the incoming query string into Elasticsearch query that we use quite heavily. And then we have always well-formed queries with certain filters always allow, applied. So there's no breakout. A user cannot see other users' data because we control the, the query that they input. So having a parser and something as rock-solid as Antler was pretty beneficial. And the, the other upside of it is that Antler can generate a JavaScript version of the parser so we can have the same parser on the, both the backend and the, uh, and the frontend. Great. There was some very interesting engineering and I went into that and how you can build like a data-driven UI driven by the textual query that actually decomposes itself into like dynamic dropdowns and input fields it was pretty fascinating to see the team build it i have no idea how that works (laughs) being super disconnected (laughs) from that i still write my Elasticsearch queries from memory it's it's good little json but they built something pretty remarkable like i haven't seen a good query language implementation like that in a while i'm very proud of what they built
0: that's cool and that's something i'm Interested to hear hear more about how your team works because you were in London up till about a year ago, and now you're in Los Angeles. I think yes, Uh, I did. Yeah, but presumably not the whole company didn't move also with you. What does work look like for you? How do you communicate as a remote team? I know a lot of people are transitioning to remote rather abruptly at the moment. So, yeah, what what have you learned?
1: It's as part of our journey as everything else. So we started. Remote from day one, it was always mine and my co-founders' like idea to work remotely. We kind of got it's just something that we always wanted to do. So well, you start your own company, you call the shots. So that was like the DNA of it. So that's one part. And our first engineer, he's actually based in well, was based in Lisbon at that time, Afonso. And we already had to work. Remotely, whether we liked it or not, because the engineer was there. So, well, we might as well just put all the processes from day one and just keep evolving them as the team grows. So, for us, you know, we did have an office for a while, but then as people started moving out of London, because we had a couple of people there, we effectively became a distributed team. And for a long time, we were running pretty much exclusively from Europe, spread between the UK, Portugal, Ireland, and Czech Republic. And as being and my co founder were Gearing towards moving to the US, Afonso, who I mentioned, he moved to Japan. So within a month from being from a European team, we became a a global team, so to speak. We 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 have now people on all the continents. And that transition was pretty interesting because we didn't have to change our processes that much. The only thing that really changed was the time when we do like a one- call every day with the whole team just to see their faces and catch up with everybody. So for us, the transition was maybe not as abrupt as what people are experiencing now. And I would say, if you're now forced into working from home, this is not your regular working from home experience. It's 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 completely, you know, I feel bad because I love the flexibility it gives. But at the same time, what people are experiencing now is just like the worst version of it, I would say, because it's forced on them. It's different when you do it by choice or it's being offered to you. So in terms of how we work, we favor asynchronous communication as much as possible, because we do not have the luxury of syncing up whenever we want to. So as I mentioned in my my blog post, the the RFC, the request for change or request for comments process is something that we rely on quite heavily for making bigger decisions in terms of architecture or or development, like shutting down rethinkdb was a very, very long Google doc, designing some of the RabbitMQ stuff or our... HTTP API framework library thing as well was driven by the documents and so on. So because then everybody has the chance to catch up on their own pace, and then we can make decisions slowly. We can have discussions without requiring you know a three-hour call with the whole team and wasting everybody's time during that. So. There's a lot of processes that we put in place over the years to like have the, what we call the rituals. Like uh, I run one-on-ones with the team. We, every month, we do a retrospective of what will happen in the, in the month and, and so on, so that we keep the synchronous communication to a minimum, but when it happens, it's very meaningful. And everything else has to be recorded somewhere, whether it's Trello or Google Docs, not Slack, but somewhere more permanent, like GitHub, for example. So we learn a lot through this as well because I used to freak out when I didn't know where people are, especially when I was just getting, being, was new to the role. And now it's, I just shoot someone a message and when they reply when they can, and I know that's being taken care of. I don't have to stress out because there is this implicit trust within a distributed team like ours, which can be quite hard if you're not used to it.
0: Yeah. That sounds like you already had set up quite a good distributed team. There's kind of a distinction that sometimes... It's not always apparent between a remote team, which I, I tend to think of as people all working not from the same location, mm-hmm. and a distributed team, which is where people are working from different time zones and they may not be available you know, for much or any of Absolutely. the day. And it sounds like you had already set things up to be a great distributed team, mm-hmm. even when you were all in Europe and all within a couple of hours. Yeah, of we each
1: had, other. yeah, we had to do it because a um, few people that we used to work with at that time, they were digital nomads. So they would move around.
0: all uh, right right. So we, kinda,
1: we say, well, let's try this. Even though we are so Europe-focused, let's see how it goes. Because, again, we don't have an office. We might give it a shot. And so some of the early systems that we put in place were because of that. And... Again, because we do not have an office, we kind of had to make up with the communication and you can only sit at a Zoom call for that long, right? It's tiring. It's more tiring than speaking to someone in person for some reason. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a distinction between a distributed team and remote team, or as people sometimes call it, part remote, when you have like a core team in an office and there's like few satellite people disconnected from all the decision-making, which I think in my opinion yeah. is the worst setup. You either go all in, have everybody in the office, or you go fully distributed. You know the midway is unfortunately not very effective, and I've been in that position before, and I know how painful it is to see this team celebrate releasing something, and you're on your own in your desk looking at them through the webcam. (laughs) You know, not the best experience.
0: Yeah, we had a remote Christmas party last year, holiday party for the team, which was quite nice. You know, we all shared recipes and bought. This was probably the thing was really fun was doing a Amazon buying session like everyone one person was screen sharing for everybody else and you had to buy something for one of the teammates but that person was on mute so they couldn't say anything and everybody else had to sort of say that's in sort of one or two minutes like what do we know about them what do they like and get them something funny yeah so i, I really enjoyed that i'm uh,
1: stealing that one that's yeah. that's brilliant
0: <laughs> so you've been running closure for quite a few years now and you've got you know a pretty large closure code base what kind of practices and things do you see now in terms of maybe like how do you write logging and monitoring and how do you write your closure are there things you've learned or built up over time that you do now if that makes sense
1: oh absolutely so there's a couple of things i think for us i still remember writing some of their first closure code. And I try to pretend as hard as possible that it works kind of like Ruby. I was very annoyed about the explicit imports and the require macro and all that stuff. And I tried to basically model things to what was familiar to me at that time, right? As one does. So for example, database connections, those would just pop out out of thin air <laughs> like they do in Rails. You don't really worry about that. And that would bring you to like a very bad position where if you don't understand how the whole REPL-driven workflow works, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot because you have some runaway threads and so on. So there was a lot of learning there. So what helped us to kind of get out of like bad practices, in my opinion, was to adopt Stuart Sierra's component library. And once that clicked, then it was kind of transformational for us because we suddenly understood, oh, okay, we can separate our applications into these components and then keep the stateful parts as the component system, everything else can be as functional as we want it to. And that kind of cleared up a lot of the things that we are struggling with. So basically, we we use component for everything. And from there, because we kind of designed this pattern for sharing certain things or sharing the structure of services, that's when we started building like a, a library of libraries that we use internally. And some of them are open source now. And Logging, for example, and metrics are one of those where, and exception tracking, where we very quickly built our own libraries for that. So that whenever you start a new project or you have a legacy closure application, you you are effectively, you have to adopt them so that we maintain the same shape of metrics and log formats and whatnot. So we have like this holy trinity of using our exception tracking library, the metrics library, and also using logback for logging with our own special custom format that gets used by our. Monitoring infrastructure. And from there, there was just more libraries that we built. And we have this umbrella project called Utility Belt because we name everything after comic book characters. So we have things like Spider Man and so on. So, Utility Belt, of course, it's not quite the superhero, but it's a very important part. So, that's an umbrella project that has a lot of our SQL layer with all the helpers that we need, things for building HTTP servers and more. There's, There's just a bunch of stuff. If you remember, Prismatic had their own, like a core library, they open source that is kind of one of those projects, but it's not monolithic. We actually broke it down into separate artifacts because we have so many services going on per person, so to speak that we cannot have a monolithic library. That actually bit us very early as well. We created something called Robin because it's a best sidekick to the superhero, <laughs> right? There's a lot of fans there. And Robin didn't work out because it just grew too big. It did everything. It did metrics, but also did RabbitMQ and HTTP clients. And it just, it was impossible to keep up with how fast we were developing it. So we had to break it down into smaller libraries that every service consumes. And that also gives us a bit of peace of mind because we do not have to worry about these huge upgrades to the whole system. We can have some the library versions in the less frequently updated services and those work when we have to touch them. That's when we refactor them to bring them up to speed with the current tooling and so on. So we can move at a slower pace when we have to, but we have all the tooling to very quickly adopt new functionality that we develop internally. And I know this is not prompted, but we've been using Deps for our private Maven repo and it's been great. So thank you for that as well. We migrated from Bintray, which was not so great. So that was fun exercise to how you rewrite thirty or forty closure projects to use a new, new <laughs> Maven coordinates. So that was fun to do. And yeah, we've been happy ever since we've been customers. So this is not an endorsement. This is a very solid product. Please go use it.
0: Great. Well, thanks for thanks for saying that. I didn't wanna didn't want to lead the conversation there. But yeah. Uh...
1: What would you like to know more about like the systems that
0: we developed? I'm really interested to hear, you know, you, you serve large customers, yeah, you know, like in, enterprises, like, the, you know, there's mm-hmm. things that you build at the concerns of enterprises, which is things like SOC 2 audits and data loss protection. I'm just looking at some of the things that you offer to enterprises. And I'm curious, what was the process like in getting those certifications and mm-hmm. building those kinds of features? Yeah. what? Tell me yeah. about those things?
1: That's a, fascinating question because there's very little technology to it those things are mostly driven by let's say communication between you and the customer a lot of those things Mm -hmm. then only once you gather the requirements understand what the requirements are that's only that's when you start thinking about the engineering side of things and the architectural stuff and i have to say some of those things have to be baked into the system. So for example, our customers require anonymization of the personal data. We don't store it per se. We don't encourage, but sometimes people send us email addresses and so on. And we have to have hooks for that in place. And only when that requirement comes up, when we say, okay, we have to be compliant. How do we what are actually requirements for compliance? What can we reasonably implement what we can require from our customers and ourselves and only then that becomes an engineering problem so i would say that that sits like above what language you use that said because everything is data and functions right and the tagline of closure they don't have the do official closure tagline it's kind of easier to think about because well we have these blobs of json over there we just need to transform them into something that redacts the personal information that's all it comes down to at the end of the day and I would say, yeah. It's less about closure, it's more about like how we communicate and implement things. Now, coming back a bit to like the internal stuff that we built, there's a lot of things that, that we can help ourselves with by having standard logging formats and sending metrics and so on, where we know that okay, we can pretty much guarantee that all the logs are annotated with a given tenants ID. So we can also look at the logs of their activity and we can provide all the logs and so on. So that's the engineering part that that comes into some of these compliance requirements, but it's not strictly driven by closure.
0: Yeah. And what did GDPR, getting ready for GDPR look like for you? It's a little while ago now.
1: Yeah, it was a while ago, but it was pretty stressful from the point of view of suddenly people realizing that it's a thing that they have to take care of (laughs) Um, from our customer side, so to speak. So we were ready for it way before it actually hit. And the anonymization features that I mentioned were part of that and just giving access to our API. We have a public API that's also written in Clojure, of course, that allows our customers to automatically delete personal information. So that was probably the biggest thing we had to we had to build. And it was quite a fun project, but it actually affected our customers more than us because from the GDPR perspective, we are the data processor. So, it's the data controller's responsibility to own the data, know where the data is, how it's being processed and by whom, and then manage it. So, we're only on the receiving end when someone says, okay, you need to delete data for Jenny because Jenny doesn't want her data to be in any of the systems that we use. That's what it comes down to us. It's more about the businesses that, that run the services that they offer to control that.
0: Nice. Maybe this is an indelicate question, but are there any systems, any integrations that you've had to do that were particularly difficult or painful to work with if i wasn't
1: wasn't my own boss i would get me fired (laughs) (laughs) just from a purely technical perspective and i'm not downplaying what everybody else is doing this stuff is ridiculously hard i think because of the sheer complexity salesforce is is incredibly challenging to work with because of its flexibility right right? yeah Um, it is something that just it's a database you're working with someone else's database and they can set it up there any way they want, right? So integrating with that was a quite interesting learning experience. I think it took us like good three attempts to get something that's workable. And again, us ourselves not being familiar, while still being in that, let's say, the greenfield stage, we said, okay, well, we know what we are doing. We clearly didn't. (laughs) But I would say I actually cut my teeth on working on... At companies that would integrate with third party systems. Enjoy is not my first rodeo. I worked at a company before that, at peak, they had 150 integrations with third parties. It's mm. a data analytics dashboard that can pull information from other sources. And I've seen it all. I've seen all the variants of spec being violated. And <laughs> some company has time queries, but the little known fact hidden in their documentation is that all the timestamps are an EDT. So good luck figuring out what oh. is the query doing. So yeah, <laughs> so I've seen things, right? And yeah. I would say that rate limiting is another thing that we have a longstanding issue with and, and figuring out how we can do rate limiting, not from the point of view of a service provider, but a service consumer, right? Where you have a multi-tenant mm-hmm. system and you might be talking to the same API endpoints, but for one customer, you can have only five requests per second. For some other customer, you have 50. How do you reconcile it? How do you distribute the rate limiting across multiple nodes so that they can get the highest throughput they can without abusing the rate limits, but also that mm. happening per tenant? So that's a fascinating problem, I think. Segment engineering team, yeah, can I was mention build something like that, which Yeah, but at the same time, there are multiple scales above us in terms of the data that they have to pull and also push to other systems. It's a bit different approach. And what they do with the data is quite different to what we do. They have to have guarantees for real-time operations, whereas we do not. We can say, okay, this is going to happen within an hour and our customers are happy with that. But it has to happen within an hour, which is still can be challenging at scale. So that's one of the things that I keep thinking about, like a good engineering solution and thinking whether that should be a separate service or it can we build it into a library and if so how we do it, distribute the state of the rate limiters and it's fun. That one is definitely fun. And I keep thinking it keeps coming back to me every couple of weeks <laughs> and just thinking how other people do it. And interestingly there's not many solutions for that because everybody focuses on the other problem of like I'm running a service like an API, how do I rate limit fairly all the clients, not the other way around.
0: Mm, yeah. That's interesting. So what else haven't we covered?
1: Yeah. So one thing that I forgot to mention while talking about Banicula is that I forgot to mention about Dacula, of course, because the names are so similar, which is our framework for building HTTP services and how that's kind of related to asynchronous processing. But that's also another thing that we got wrong so many times, how to build a, a synchronous service that talks over HTTP and how we build our own framework for doing that. And I think one of the interesting choices that we made both in Banicula and Dacula cases was that we didn't use JSON. We actually decided to go with Avro for the serialization mm. format because rather than, I mean, we still use JSON because of legacy reasons, but whenever possible, we actually moved to Avro so that we can A, have way smaller payload sizes, but then B is that we can ensure type safety on the edges of the system. So we know that mm-hmm. you cannot make a call to a web service Without having the right schema, because that will explode during request phase, and then the response can also fail because the service is replying with the wrong version of the schema that you're expecting. So rather than pushing, you know, the validation logic somewhere down the line, only in the server, we can actually have the safety on both ends of the client and the backend. And Avro was picked partially because it's cross-platform, unlike let's say Closure Spec or prismatic schema, which is closure only, we have to work with Ruby and JavaScript and Clojure. So we had to pick something else that can also work over HTTP, unlike uh, protocol buffers. So that was quite an interesting project as well, because we use Avro pretty heavily in parts of the system, but not for the, your, your usual big data usage. We just use it as a, as a better JSON, so to speak. So Dacula is designed to, at the very least, use Avro as the shared schema format for validating incoming and outgoing data but eventually you will be able to talk Avro exclusively so you will be able to have a HTTP client that sends Avro payload and receives our Avro payload without JSON in between.
0: Nice and how do you where do you put your registry of schemas how does that live?
1: In the spirit of very simple solutions our Avro schema registry is a git submodule that gets synchronized on every deploy of every service and surprisingly that worked better than we expected. We were looking at very simple solutions like let's just have an Nginx container that has all the schemas and everybody just talks to it and just pulls the ver- latest versions. Mm-hmm. But that's complicated to orchestrate. What if you missed an update or there's a timeout because the service is not available, which can happen with the Confluence registry as well. So we just decided, okay, we're just going to bundle it with source and we're going to pull a Git submodule whenever we build the Docker containers. And that's it's been serving us well for over three years now. And I'm pretty surprised because I thought this is going to be quite problematic and it works okay maybe because the flexibility of Avro is is such as that you can keep adding fields and you can deprecate them and you can do a gradual rollout of making fields nullable and then eventually remove them so you ensure that at some point the whole system will be on the latest version of the schema so that flexibility is quite interesting. Protocol buffers have similar property but again I like Avro because the available libraries for closure are super flexible. You can actually use them from the REPL. You can reload your schemas, which I believe was a problem when working with protocol buffers, where you had to use the Java compiler for some things to generate right. the Java classes. Yeah. Whereas with Avro, you don't have that problem. It behaves just like as you would expect. You can just refresh the schema, you get the new uh, schema definition memory.
0: And so you don't necessarily support all versions forever. You'll keep it around and slowly migrate. Correct. Yeah, we we always move
1: forward. And that's actually a principle we have across our whole development cycle. We rarely roll back. We always move forward. We just fix the issue and just mitigate it rather than doing rollback because that's just something that came from my experience. Rollbacks are usually harder than people think. Adding a new database field, fine. You You might get the type wrong. So you just add another migration that fixes the type. But undoing it, which involves dropping data, might be irreversible. So it's better to just keep <laughs> what you have and just fix the situation in place rather than risk losing data.
0: What do you use for database migrations?
1: We use RackTime for Postgres migrations and Elasticsearch. We built our own system for managing the schema and the settings. So there was just nothing good at the time when we had to build something like that. I believe there are some better solutions now. I've seen something, I think it's called Migratis that can handle different systems than right. SQL databases, yep. which I believe can mm. do some of that. So I have to look into it. But we are all in on ragtime time for migrations for Postgres.
0: Nice. So your infrastructure, the, the services you're, you're running on the back end, we've got Postgres, RabbitMQ. Are there any other sort of services, like not code you've written, but other mm-hmm. other services you've got going on? We are, we are
1: predictably boring. We have Redis in place and Elasticsearch. All right. And yep. I think that's that's pretty much it. Like A lot of the stuff that, like I said, we scaled down on our innovation <laughs> budget <laughs> with things like RethinkDB. I am always on the lookout on things that, like, don't get me wrong. Like I said, like we did pretty extensive testing of things like console and ETCD and mm-hmm. also JGroups, which was quite interesting stuff, which is basically your own distributed consensus that you can bake in into applications. It's really cool. I mm. Actually, I'm learning about the Java ecosystem for the last five years. There's so much interesting stuff, so much engineering like, that just you can just take and use in a much nicer language than Java. Again, that's my personal take. And we can just leverage all of that. So building a distributed application with Clojure is pretty simple as opposed to other languages where you have to lean on bigger systems like Console or ZooKeeper. Whereas something like JGroups groups requires very little interop and you can have something that can form clusters and elect leaders and stuff. It's really cool, I have to say. Now, it didn't work with Google Clouds networking, so that's another problem. But, right. but in general, it's a very interesting piece of technology. So coming back to your original question, yeah, we keep things very, very boring, especially after we've been burned by some bad choices in my side early on.
0: Yeah, I've also been very cautious about any other data but datastore oh, picks after rethink
1: definitely yes i would love to hear your story on RethinkDB. how did that go and what was the project about and and what was your experience like not to badmouth them i think this is a very interesting no. piece of technology it's just the uses of it are surprising to me because all i can hear is people moving off it not because of bad engineering it just was a bit bad fit which tells you something right
0: yeah so i was working with day eight and mike thompson who's the CEO of Day8, uh, and also he's a developer as well, he also does development, was really keen on this idea of synchronizing data and having live data in your system so that you would be programming in your front end and you'd get synchronized data, you'd be able to make queries, do, do your database access, not like directly from the front end, of course you don't really want to expose your database right out, but to be able to easily synchronize data was the idea without needing to write a bunch of Backend code. And so RethinkDB is pretty unique. It's still, I haven't really seen this feature very often. in even since, is this live queries or streaming yes. queries? Yeah, the change forget, feeds, uh, yeah. Change feeds, yes. And so what we did was we built a proxy that sat between RethinkDB mm-hmm. and the rest of the system and so we could safely look at the query uh, it's interesting that the rethink query language is a lisp i don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever mm-hmm. had to go yep. look down at the protocol but oh, it's... yes i had to <laughs> yeah uh, and so it's very easy to pass those queries enclosure and see kind of what's going on and only whitelist certain kinds of things or certain mm-hmm. kinds of queries in combination with other kinds of parameters so you can restrict you know what can be queried for and so it worked pretty well like it was never like a bad solution but i guess after RethinkDB db the company shut down it was always rethink db you know at least a million lines of c++ or it's, it's a lot of c++ anyway mm-hmm. it's far more than we were ever going to be able to manage so we were kind of in this position of well if we like if something goes wrong now we're really stuck and so what we had was fine but we we said all right well we we just can't like continue to invest new energy into this thing when the the backing databases has gone. Sure. And this was well before GraphQL came out, or at least certainly before GraphQL was was well understood outside of Facebook. And so, um, just before I left, that was kind of the direction that Day Eight was looking at. Was your know, GraphQL provides streaming queries, and you know gives you gives you a lot of the the things that we were able to get from RethinkDB, but in a more you know, supportable and maintainable solution. Yeah,
1: that's fascinating. Yeah, I definitely had like my share of adventures with, with RethinkDB and looking into the query language and why things work the way they work. But again, like I said, it's, it's very solid for the simple use case. And, and while we never leveraged the change feeds, it was very cool to just write a query that gives you the slow queries in real time. I think I had that snippet for a while where, you know, when we were investigating some problems with performance, we would just, you know, run the slow query and it would update live. You know, no refresh right. needed. Yeah. You can query yeah. the state of the database, which was pretty fascinating. I never seen that, anything like that since. And and it's definitely some really cool engineering. You know, you mentioned the time when they were the company was shutting down. I remember hastily cloning the Git repo, you know, tarring it up to S3 just to have the source code because who knows what's going to happen with it, you know, just to have a copy around it in case we really have to dig into it. But luckily that nothing came to that, but it was pretty, yeah, you have to keep everybody safe. And as you are saying, we also faced the fact that, well, okay, we are now running 100 or maybe 300 gigabytes of data on something that's unmaintained, like what now? So, yeah, it was was definitely not a good look.
0: Yeah. And so you're now in, in the U.S. You and your co-founder are both, Correct, both yep. here now? Correct. Mm-hmm. That's great. Right. But the rest of the team is still scattered around the rest of the world.
1: Yes. Yes. Japan, Portugal, Czech Republic, Ireland. Yeah, we are all over.
0: Nice. And uh, so it doesn't sound like you've got any plans to open up a, a U.S. office anytime uh- soon.
1: Yeah. No office necessary. That would be, you know, that will be a label on us because we, we never actually had a need of an office. Even when we have meetings with customers, we usually go to them, which is pretty nice being here now in California. And onboarding new new hires uh, like i did in the past we always did that remote it actually took sometimes very like quite a long time to actually see someone physically because we would just right. hire yeah. hire in a in a remote way and they would get onboarded and i will guide them through the whole process for months and then we get the team do the get, team get together and it's like oh you're actually taller than I thought you know those kind <laughs> of surprises so yeah there's there's no plans for an office because we frankly do not need one so which is pretty good I would say that that definitely worked out. That was one of the good choices that we've made early on.
0: <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about your company. And you've got some really interesting technology and great names showing up on, on the, the Enjoy website of customers. So yeah, it sounds like yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you work on in the future and maybe some some more libraries that come out over time
1: definitely i will be speaking at closure north about uh, docula and what we are actually how it grew and what we are doing with it where it's going and and going into more details into why for example we do not use rest and so on so watch out for that one i'm actually in touch with the organizers uh, that are considering doing that whole conference uh, in our remote fashion so it's going to be quite interesting to participate in as well
0: yeah what's the date uh 2nd of April in New Zealand, as we talk. So right in the middle of worldwide pandemic. So not clear Yeah, what conferences are going to be running later in the year.
1: Yeah, we, you know, we as a company participated in a lot of conferences and, and we were having, well, let's call it a roadshow around Northern uh, America and all of those got either cancelled or moved to be fully remote events. So I'm, I'm expecting that effectively everything from now on for the next six months, at least, is going to be either virtual or is going to be postponed. So fingers crossed that it's going to happen. It's a, it's a fun experience, nevertheless. Yes, you cannot meet people in person, but the learning still happens in some form.
0: Yeah, well, stay safe and we will be in touch.
1: Likewise, yeah. Thank you for having me on.
0: No problem.